Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bow, the host of the channel. This week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Rachel Mundy, author of Animal Musicalities, Birds, Beasts, and Evolutionary Listening, which was published by Wesleyan University Press in 2018. In her book, Mundy carefully demonstrates how the research that we today consider part of the history of the humanities is intimately connected with the lives of animals. By focusing on animal song, with a special emphasis on bird song, Mundy recounts dozens of encounters, in the field and in the lab, between human researchers and animals. In these encounters, some forms of life are figured as less than human, in a grand exchange of difference according to which non-human forms of life were identified and classified as objects. Although these research techniques seem to entail dispassionate disidentification between the researcher and their objects of research, Mundy has a talent for evoking the intimacy of the encounter between human and animal, and for evincing empathy with both terms of these relations equally well, even when they are today increasingly easily recognisable as instances of a dangerous speciesism. One reason for this narrative strategy of identification with one's historical actors is that the book is considerably more than a collection of diverse and deeply researched vignettes into the ethics of research into animal musicality. Rather, it culminates in a call for a present-day reappraisal of the scope and premise of the humanities and the human sciences at large, since Mundy shows that how researchers have valued animal life in the past has structured not only their relationship with the animal kingdom, but has had lasting effects on how all kinds of critical differences are figured in the contemporary postmodern humanities. Rachel Mundy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for that generous introduction. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for your time. Uh, it's, It's great to have this time to kind of chat to this book. I, I flag it at the very beginning. I really enjoyed this. Um, but I suppose before we get on with discussing the book, um, I wonder if you could begin just briefly by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, how you came to write this book. Sure. I'm a historical musicologist. I teach at Rutgers University in New Jersey in the United States. Um, Uh, I came to write the book, really, I think that you could say it began while I was a graduate student in New York City working on a dissertation, which originally was about budgets in France for avant-garde music in the 1950s. And I went to Paris and was doing research, which turned out to be incredibly boring. (laughs) And um, while I waited in the National Library there for the librarians to bring me materials, Um, I read through back issues of French ornithology journals for about 35, 40 years worth. Um, And I had been at the same time, just for fun, recording birdsong in my local neighborhoods in New York. I didn't record in Paris, but I'd recorded for the previous year in New York City. And uh, I had been profoundly interested as a kind of side project in why the sounds that I was recording had so little to do with scientific literature on birdsong. And when I finished doing my archival research on French avant-garde budgets, 
um, I went back to New York and went to the teachers that I was working with and basically said, um, I really don't think this is the right topic for me. Uh, and they were very kind. They supported my decision to change that topic. And it, it just felt to me that in that moment, that was in about 2008, 2009, it felt to me that uh, rethinking the animal was a much more important question for me, um, a more important question for musicians and music scholars, but also like a more important question for people in the humanities more broadly. Right. And I think that when I think about my own training as a musicologist, a music theorist, it's not, the, it's, it, it's only increasingly becoming a theme in, in research, I suppose, in the last five or 10 years to see kind of the serious treatment of um, musicology beyond the human. And that's uh, in many ways kind of the, the premise or, or the starting point of, of much of, of what you describe in the book. Um, I'd, I'd like to start actually by speaking about uh, together at the same time, the introduction and the conclusion of the book. Uh, while at the same time not trying to preempt uh, some of the, the the kind of structure of the book, which comes from the careful unfolding uh, of the ideas towards this conclusion. Um, in, in the opening of Animal Musicalities, you describe in plain terms its central thesis. You write that modern sonic culture is unthinkable without the lives of animals, end quote. This position emerges from careful consideration of the history of research into sound, showing that researchers often make explicit and implicit assumptions about the characteristic features of the human, the less than human, and the utterly non-human. But by the end of the book, you begin to outline the motifs of a new intellectual formation that you call the animanities. Um, and though you admit to its made-upness explicitly, this new field of study or this new discipline is anything but trivial or fleeting. Rather, the animanities implies a ground-up reconsideration of the value that has been attached to animal lives throughout the long history of the humanities, which might be said to be humanistic only by dint of a, a relatively limited notion of what a humanity can says. Um, and I, this is a kind of an important context for this, was we were just speaking before we started recording about um, the massive response not only in the US, but globally to uh, the treatment of George Floyd by the police in the United States, but also what that stands for in terms of the sort of repeated dehumanizing and making uh, less than human that... Um, people of all races and, and indeed um, genders, classes, sexualities experience at various different times uh, throughout their interaction, not just with other people, but with the state. And so, um, you know, given that context for what we're about to speak about, um, and I, I'm, I trust that this is something that's on your mind increasingly now, uh, could you take our listeners along the thought process that led you to develop this distinctive frame for the discussion that follows in your book, despite the fact that perhaps at this point, it might not be immediately clear what the connection is? So I think I'm going to answer that by sort of um, putting in comparison two very different sounding topics. And one is the idea of like music plus animals, which is a topic that I think a lot of people associate with, um, with wild animals, right? Like birdsong. Um, it's often associated with a very specific genre of work. Uh, people like Francois Bernard Mache or Olivier Messiaen. Um, so on the one hand, we have this idea of like animals there, there's a, a set of ideas about animals and sound in what seems like a very unrelated sphere. If you think about the way the humanities have been done in the 20th and 21st century, one of the most important moments that we talk about is a moment in the 1970s and 1980s, um, when the idea of analyzing categories of identity as, as cultural and historical categories of analysis took hold 
in historiography um, and subsequently in music. So if you're a musicologist, you know this as the new musicology. Um, and this is the moment when scholars, uh, particularly scholars of um, areas in like English history, music, art history, began to rethink traditional historical narratives in relation to race, in relation to gender, in relation to things like social class, um, sexuality. Uh, so at first glance, these, these ideas of like animals and categories of analysis of identity seem totally unrelated. Um, but one of the conclusions that I have come to over time is that the idea of understanding some lives as more valuable than others on a comparative basis is something that has been deeply, deeply ingrained in not only humanistic, but also scientific academic practice since the late 1800s. Um, and so when I look at the present moment, I mean, we're, we're in a moment in the United States where we have this really kind of almost hopeful uprising against police violence that's um, anti-Black. But we're also in a moment where the value of some lives is being assessed in extremely explicit ways in relation to a, a global pandemic, right, in relation to COVID-19. And what I mean by that is in the United States, for example, we have this phrase essential workers. And an essential worker is uh, someone who is deemed incredibly important. This could be a grocery worker, a nurse, um, a delivery person. But most of these people in this country are not being paid more for their essential work or are being paid a marginal amount. Um, and at least in my area, they have borne the burden of this virus in massively disproportionate ways. So when I think about the idea that the practice of the humanities, the practice of science over the last 150 or 200 years has been structured around measures of inequality around measures of difference, um, many of which are, are deeply grounded in the concept of animality. I look at this moment and think this is kind of a moment to start really deeply rethinking um, what the humanities are, where they come from, what they do, how we could make them better. And this idea of the animanities, I, I, I kind of almost use the word as a joke because it's sort of a funny sounding word. Um, but I was trying to use it to gesture towards a set of methods and ideas that were rooted in historical research that could help people build stepping stones out of that tradition. Great. Yeah. And I, I think even though it is intended in this kind of lighthearted way, it's entirely, you know, it's entirely non-trivial for its consequences. And that's exactly kind of where we end up by the time we've, we get to the, the final, the final um, gesture of the book. Um, so kind of scrolling back maybe to um, earlier on and, and trying to get or build towards that more nuanced or developed sense of uh, the human in the humanism of the, the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, we start in the late 19th century in chapter one, in which you retrace the steps of a vibrant print discourse that revolved around the question. Again, may seem a little bit distant from what we've just spoken about, but uh, by the end of the podcast, it should be clear why, why it's not. And that question is, why do birds sing? And some of the figures who asked this question in the past will be familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, for example, the naturalist Charles Darwin argued that animal song was a kind of precursor to human language and played a role in sexual selection. This was famously contested by one of his many intellectual sparring partners, Herbert Spencer. 
Other, perhaps less familiar characters who support, defend, or complicate these various positions feature in your first chapter, which takes an overview of the various views that have been adopted on this question in the period from about 1870 to the the first quarter of the 20th century. Could you begin then by giving us a sense for the kind of people, first of all, who are interested in posing this deceptively simple question, why do birds sing? What kinds of answers they found to that question? And I suppose more crucially for the book and what we've just been speaking about, what the various answers to that particular question put at stake, not only in terms of our historical understanding of animal behavior, but for notions of individuality, uh, personal differentiation, and so on, uh, more generally. I think one of the things I love about science of the late 19th century is that the kinds of people who do it uh, force us to dramatically reevaluate what we mean by a word like scientist. Um, even if you look carefully, as, and this is not something I discovered, this is well known, but some a figure like Charles Darwin, um, it's very hard to square him with the idea of a, a modern evolutionary biologist. Um, their backgrounds were different, their practices were different, um, their methods and approaches were very different. And this is very true of this question, who studied birdsong <laughs> in the mm-hmm. um, late 1800s? Um, so Darwin is one sort of obvious answer. Um, I wouldn't say that Spencer really studied birdsong, but he was he was certainly interested in the idea as a concept because to him it, it was something about what made humans unique. But then there were also people who... Um, had a kind of mix of expertise that's very impressive and autodidacticism. Um, One of these figures that I've always liked was Ferdinand Schuyler Matthews, who was a naturalist and also a voice teacher in the United States. Um, He wrote a series of guides and ended up doing um, some professional work as a naturalist. A lot of his bird guides, though, the level of knowledge is quite impressive, and he used his music, his musical knowledge. He would transcribe, um, he would transcribe bird songs by ear, <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then provide these beautiful musical transcriptions. Um, and the kind of information he provided was quite in depth, but it's a kind of information that had more to do with what you'd call natural history than what you'd call biology. Um, it was much more about animal behavior, habits, place, and space than it was about um, sort of their anatomical composition or genetics, things like that. Um, one of the one of the moments that I really loved learning about when I was researching the book was a kind of set of debates that emerged in print over whether or not female birds. Uh, wanted sex, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, One of the questions that arose uh, between scientists um, in the 1920s was, well, do, do female birds, uh, and this was in American ornithology journals, uh, are female birds tasteful? That is, do they listen for better and worse songs? Do they have a kind of rubric of good music? And that's how they choose a mate. Or are male birds... Uh, barraging them with song persistently until they give in and sort of have sex because they're, they just can't stop themselves at that point. Um, And it mapped so explicitly onto contemporary discourse about female sexuality. Um, This debate happened in the same five-year period that Congress in the U S was debating women's right to vote. 
Um, and the language of the debate in print, um, one of the ornithologists who was promoting the idea that females had, female birds had taste actually even said, how can you, how can you ever have met a female of your own species and not think that they're sentient thinking beings in the sexual world? <laughs> so I thought there was something really neat about that. Right. And I think it's interesting or or important to point out that it's not just a a simple case of transference or, um, I suppose, one-way anthropomorphizing. I think this is important, certainly in my reading of the the book, is that these projections and transferences and imagination of how the animal species will behave in terms that maybe are more familiar to the um, sexual politics of human beings at the time, um, it's not just flowing in one direction, right? Like, there's a, a sense in which they see themselves reflected in the objects of research and then, of course, shape the science that they do. So I think it's important, or maybe you'd like to just mention that as well, like how you view the kind of closed circuits or, or the many kind of iterations through this process um, that you see, in, not just in this chapter, but throughout the book. I think one of the most revealing, um, I'll borrow your, your phrase, circuits, um, one of the most revealing sort of disconnected circuits in this question actually is the idea that um, wild species were, were, were viewed as a way to inform understandings of human behavior, especially wild species that were treated as in some way um, free, right? So something like a, a wood thrush was a good model for thinking about human sexuality. But domesticated species were a totally different conversation. So you never, for example, see discussions about uh, chicken vocalizations. You never see discussions about um, ducks, not even game birds um, in these debates. And so I think something I would, I would even pull out, this isn't quite answering your question, but in some ways I think it's really important. I would even sort of pull out that one of the things that's... Um, kind of profoundly informing the way that non-human species were believed both to reflect human behavior, but also to inform our understanding of human behavior, right? Like they really thought that they could learn new things by studying these animals, but they didn't seem to think that about the, or certainly um, they didn't seem to think that about a particular privileged class of humans um, as something that would apply equally to domesticated species. Mm -hmm, Indeed. And I can imagine that being, kind of related to where they expect their kind of scientific inspiration to come from or, you know, other kind of ideas about um, the source of, of knowledge about the natural world in a kind of more uh, maybe vitalistic or, or, or organicist model that we maybe have left behind. Well, one um, reason I even pull it out is because, of course, this is where Darwin's theory of evolution starts in the origin of species is with domestication. Um, he begins by saying that you have to look at domesticated species. Um, and this is a topic I haven't really studied. So I hope someone listening to this says, Oh, I should, <laughs> I should look into this. Right. Because it's, it's clear that something like context is going to, to determine. And then again, another where, where this is in, in, in dialogue as a book with, um, sort of the history of science literature and, um, uh, the kind of history of, uh, the disciplines more generally is that these, these contextual cues are going to impact, not just, um, where the science is done, but what science is done in that in that in that mode um so we might move on to the second chapter um collecting silence 
the sonic specimen. Um, in, in the second chapter of the book, you begin the first of two major parts in the book. So the book is structured in a number of chapters, but there are two major parts. This first major part deals principally with uh, pre-World War II research by naturalists and, and ethnographers into the songs of their subjects. So that's avian songs and human songs alike. Anyone who's visited a natural history museum will be familiar with the visual rhetoric of stuffed and preserved animal examples arrayed uh, generally according to kind of conventional taxonomies. So that the rhetoric of how the animal world is structured is visible in the way that they're laid out as specimens. Um, by looking at the song collecting practices of a number of early 20th century researchers, you introduce, introduce the notion of the what you call the sonic specimen, which is a kind of an analog for these practices of classification and identification that uh, maybe are more familiar to us from the library museum context. Uh, but it's an analog for this notion as it's applied to sound artifacts. What was it about the intellectual lineage and the activities, I suppose, of the song collectors that you described that suggested this particular turn of phrase? And I suppose kind of relatedly, what common cultural operations did this notion of the sonic specimen afford to collectors, uh, be they naturalists uh, or ethnographers? I think um, to me, the main answer to that question is that the as I looked at, I looked at hundreds of examples of studies of non-Western music from probably around 1880 to 1930, 1940. And one of the things that became very clear very quickly was that most of those studies uh, dealt with many, many short examples. So for example, you never saw studies of a song that like looked at a, you know, 20 minutes of music and only looked at that. Um, they tended to look at hundreds of melodies. So they were collections. And I found that very interesting. And they were comparative collections, which I found really interesting. Uh, one of the things that I, I began to realize was that a lot of the people who did particularly exhausting co comparative collections um, were starting to look for what they thought of as kind of song archetypes, um, mm. In fact, I, I often saw them use the word type. Um, and so this idea of a sonic specimen came to me partly because a lot of them were treating songs as if they were biological specimens um, with the same goal that at that time people were applying to specimens. This isn't necessarily how a natural history museum will use a specimen today, but the idea then was that you would um, compile a large number of specimens of the same species for comparative purposes tag one of them as a archetype of the species, um, usually the first one that was discovered. And then that would provide you a kind of map or guide for understanding how to categorize future, future animals. And in this case, they were applying this model to music um, and looking for ways to categorize music. And they would say very explicitly that the purpose of gathering so many of these short melodic examples was for comparison aimed at developing song types. Um, so that for me was, was fascinating. And one of the things that was most surprising was that you would think, uh, you know, as, a, as someone who has a background in music, you would think that if you look at hundreds of melodies, the thing that you would be most interested would be details that make each melody different. But in fact, three or four different um, scholars from different places, from Russia, from the United States, from um, the United Kingdom, would say separately, no, no, if you really want to understand how to, 
how to compare songs, what you actually have to do is remove all detail. And what they meant was quite extreme. Remove all ornamentation, remove all um, harmonic deviations. So they would remove accidentals. They would remove sharps and flats sometimes. Um, remove you know intervals that were seen as outliers. Um, it was very fascinating to me because it's hard to imagine, you know, coming from the time and place that I'm at that you could get anything useful by doing this. Um, but, but then I would look at it and it was, it was fascinating. Um, one of the other things that they were really interested in, not all of them, but some of them, um, well, in fact, this was true of quite a lot of these collectors was the idea of visual representation as an important modeling technique that would help you compare. And that makes sense because if you're trying to compare 50 songs, it's much easier to do that if you have a way to notate them visually so that you can lay them side by side and compare them simultaneously. Whereas if you're using your ears, you can't do that simultaneously. You have to do that um, separately. And they experimented a lot with techniques, um, one of the favorites of which was graphing, which came up in a later chapter in my book. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you you bring that up now, actually, because it becomes an important theme um, in terms of making those distinctions, or I suppose in this case, the similarities between notated or recorded melodies. Um appeal to a different kind of logic, that right. of visuality, right? Um, where it ties in very beautifully in a later chapter, yet again, with how these uh, animals are represented in print as well. Um, I, I'm just thinking um, kind of off the cuff a little bit on um, particularly the question of length and, and the idea that this, you know, the kinds of representations of, of, of both bird song and, and uh, human song that you encountered were kind of compressed or shortened. Yeah. Um, like how, where do you see some of the constraints coming in on that? Like, why is it that we're presented with these shorter snippets in there? And uh, is it, is it a function of the historical record? Is it a function of the fact that print was the medium that these things were being communicated or how, how do you view the kind of the size, the scale element of the, um, the sonic specimen? Well, they were totally capable of doing longer transcriptions, um, even people who were writing by ear. So you, you can find transcriptions um, of of a traditional songs, you know, of traditional Irish songs. You can find complete transcriptions. Um, it's totally doable. And you can even find transcriptions that include all the details, <laughs> right, um, that are effectively uh, performance transcriptions, Um I think part of what happened with these collections was that they were part of a scientific culture that really emphasized the culture of comparison as, as a pathway to knowledge. Um, so for me, it was a deliberate choice that helped actually professionalize collectors and distinguish them from people who were, you could say, um, amateurs or or kind of merely listen merely interested listeners uh, merely curio collectors people who had like a whole song um i think part of the distinction that that set aside people who viewed themselves as more professionalized and scientific was that um they they had the knowledge in their you know in their method to sort of compress and shorten examples and also to amass so very many of them Right, there's a rhetoric of quantity too in terms of your ability to master or the amount of time that you have in the field versus right. the amount of 
material that you come back with and right. so on. And a few exceptional figures emerged in my research, um, some of whom are quite well known. Uh, Jesse Walker Fuchs was an American ethnographer who started as an actual specimen collector for the... Um, um, he was working with the Harvard Museum of Natural History. And um, he had a falling out with the guy who ran it and, and sort of went off into music research. <laughs> um, but one of the things that interested me was he was one of not a lot, maybe two or three figures that began as literal biological specimen collectors and transitioned to music collectors very, very easily. Um, and the things that they made looked exactly like what other music collectors were. And that, that sort of helped, um, I think, build a circumstantial case that people who were doing this kind of collection, um, though they didn't use the phrase sonic specimen themselves, were really thinking in those terms. Sure, yeah. Uh, and in fact, I mean, maybe we'll get down to two individuals in particular as we start to think about imagined concrete individuals with particular experiences and skills and trainings and so on uh, as we get into the third chapter in the book which is um, a little bit more about that act of collecting um so chapter three um is entitled collecting songs avian and african um and just as we think a bit more reflexively about the book as a whole the third chapter was especially compelling to me um not only because it offers two deeply researched pictures of pre-war practices of collection but also because it models some of the kind of scholarly values and rhetorical strategies that your book as a whole sets out to encourage um, values which go beyond the remit of animal musicalities um, and extend to this concept of the animalities we talked about um, briefly already. Uh, throughout the book, for example, you underscore the benefits that accrue to researchers um, that are willing to identify with historical others rather than to simply identify them. And this willingness to empathize with your historical protagonist is perhaps nowhere more pronounced than in this third chapter, um, although it kind of is throughout the book. In the third chapter, you introduce us to two researchers, uh, notably by their first names, so it's Wallace and Laura, who set out in the decades prior to the outbreak of World War II to collect and taxonomize songs under the signs of their respective disciplines. But in reflexive twist that is characteristic of many of the case studies in your book, you explain how they, as researchers, also become subject to the same logics of identification, evaluation, and comparison that they seek to in turn effect upon their own objects of study. Uh, could you explain to our listeners then who Wallace and Laura were and what motivated you to retell their stories in this particular way? So Wallace Craig... Um and Laura Crater Bolton were two different kinds of collectors. Um, they, they had a couple of mentors in common, but to the best of my knowledge, didn't know each other. Wallace Craig is someone who is really quite famous in his own small way. Um, he's considered the first American ethologist, which is uh, the science of animal behaviorism. Um, in many ways, uh, he's really considered a landmark figure in that field for the uniqueness of his research. One of his first major projects was the first and only study of passenger pigeon vocalization. When he was a graduate student, he worked, um, one of his jobs was helping to take care of the last remaining collection of passenger pigeons. Speaking of collections, this was like a literal collection of passenger pigeons um, that were kept by his graduate advisor at the University of Chicago, and he helped take care of them. And while he was doing that, um, he notated their vocalizations and observed their behaviors. Um, 
he had very creative and for the time unusual ideas about animal behavior. Uh, this was a moment in the 1920s and 30s when a lot of people thought of animals as machines, like the model for an animal was a kind of mechanistic model where their motives were understood to be almost like a kind of computer circuitry. Um, and he really approached them quite differently and asked questions about sociology, about cultural influence. He argued that um, avian communities, this is quite incredible, actually, even today, he argued that avian um, communities passed down cultural knowledge from generation to generation with which they could not survive. Uh, one of the arguments he made that that is really fascinating, actually, was that um, so passenger pigeons live in these massive flocks. Um, they were huge flocks. And if, if you've ever heard like a mourning dove, which is a relatively common bird, and there's lots of doves in Europe as well, they tend to make a very gentle sound like, ooh, coo. Um, sometimes here in the States, the most common dove people mistake its sound for a small owl. It's a very sort of small, quiet sound. And he observed, uh, attempts in his graduate program, uh, his advisor attempted to crossbreed the remaining passenger pigeons with closely related birds that biologically were totally compatible. And it turned out that passenger pigeons, when they court each other, they, they shriek loudly because they're used to living in these massive, large flocks. And so they don't say coo coo because nobody could hear them in this huge, massive pigeon community. They say, rah, rah. <laughs> and um, they terrified the other birds. So they, you know, they would be put into confinement with female birds and they would, they were hoping that they would mate and create hybrids that could sort of extend the species. Um, and instead of that, what happened was that their vocal behavior and their physical behavior just absolutely frightened the other birds and they never mated successfully. And part of his argument was that this was not a biological behavior. This was a cultural behavior. And yet the species couldn't survive intact without it. Um, and so he was really a remarkable figure, but if you look at his career, if, if he were a modern day academic um, he would be at the very bottom of our pecking order, so to speak. Um, and I love, I mean, I am an academic, I love academia, but one of the other backdrops to this chapter is the fact that we live in a, we live in a somewhat cloister world that is very predetermined by hierarchical expectations based on this culture of comparison that we study and regenerate again and again. Um, he started out, doing all the right things. The goal was to become a professor with an independent laboratory, which we would all like, right? I would like that. I'm sure you would like that, Amy. <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and he did what you did. He got a graduate degree from the, a top-ranking school from the University of Chicago, famous advisor. Um, he went on to a reputable postdoc, and he got his first tenure-track job, not perfect but pretty good, at the University of Maine, and he went deaf. And as soon as he went deaf, that was the end of his career. Um, we don't know exactly what the details are, but he was let go from the university. Um, it seems like it was probably related to his hearing loss. He went back and lobbied former mentors and um, teachers, hoping to get jobs. Um, but a lot of his former mentors and teachers were experts in 
comparative biology, and many of them were like deeply ingrained in eugenics by the 1920s. Um, so having a deaf man come to them and say, you know, I, I'm doing great work here. Um, it wasn't a particularly successful ploy with, with all of his colleagues. Um, he did have some supportive aides and eventually got a part-time gig teaching at Harvard, which devolved into being a kind of librarian's assistant there. Um, and to me, I, I found that story just completely compelling because here is an individual who, as historians, we praise, right? But if we were to meet this individual in Harvard's library, we would dismiss him. And, and, and that dismissal is the very fabric of the, of the research that he was trying to change. Right, precisely because it hinges around the kind of the mode of of classification and through the <laughs> through the sensory mode of hearing. Indeed, right. I think we'd be remiss to let chapter three go by just uh, without a word about the other um, Laura Bolton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she's in some ways she was uh, she took longer for me to truly sympathize with than Wallace Craig. Um, she's pretty well known in ethnomusicology uh, as one of these controversial figures who went on colonial expeditions to Africa to collect music and also stuff. Um, She went on a lot of museum expeditions and brought back musical instruments, recordings, later on videos. Um, She managed to eke out a pretty successful independent career for herself. And one of the things I learned about her, kind of like Wallace Craig, was that the the very thing that we don't like about her, which is that she took advantage of this colonial context. I mean, she really did. Um, she made a lot of recordings of um, people in West and um, Southern Africa that she, you know they didn't get any kind of compensation. It's very hard to know what they actually said about their work. You know, she's she's sort of the only source you have of information about her recordings. Um. And yet, if you dig into her life a little bit more deeply, there too, you find that many of her less likable decisions were the only decisions she could have made to succeed in her career. Uh, And by that, I mean, she really seems to have wanted to be a scientist. Um, She trained in music and looked into being a singer, but her first full-time job was as a librarian's assistant with um, Charles Davenport, who was one of, in fact, Wallace Craig's graduate teachers. Um, Davenport taught at a laboratory called Cold Spring Harbor Labs um, in New York on Long Island. That was also, under Davenport's guidance, the Center for American Eugenics Research in the 1920s. And so Laura Bolton's first job there was effectively categorizing eugenics information. Um, She, like Wallace Craig, was a librarian's assistant and eventually became a librarian. This was at the beginning of her career. So she started where he ended and she wanted to move up. Uh, She tried to get a doctorate um, as a white woman. She she just really struggled to get the degree done, to get respect. She worked with well-known ethnomusicologists who really didn't. Um, treat her as an equal. And it always seemed to me that part of her willingness to exploit available colonial resources had to do with a sense that um, she wanted to get ahead. And this was sort of the avenue that was available to her. Um, 
at a moment when it was very, very hard to succeed as a woman in the humanities. Um, so she, to me, has always been a fascinating figure. And there's much, much more to her story. Indeed. And I think that it's it's good that we think about these difficult cases, that challenge, I suppose, maybe our, our sense of orientation as to what's right or what's wrong in a given context. But more importantly, from the purposes or from the perspective of the book, I think it's important to recognize that you concede that we may disagree about exactly how that particular uh, moral discussion is going to fall in terms of where we place our judgment. But it's we, we can't go and let this uh, the, these incidences pass by without trying to understand or trying to develop a sensitivity or, or sympathy with that. And I, I think it's possibly one of the most challenging elements or challenging moments in the book comes in, in the fourth chapter, in fact, where um, we, we are confronted with this kind of almost as a theme of, of the chapter itself. But then you show that that's not necessarily uh, the only way to think about it. So in, in the fourth chapter, which is called Songs on the Dissecting Table, you open with a striking and graphic description of the process of analyzing a folk melody by the director of the Berlin Phonograph Archive in 1920. Eric von Hohenbussel makes liberal use of metaphors that give the song a notional physiology and frame the comparative musicologist's enterprise in terms, bluntly, of vivisection. So this comparison would appear to place the following star question on the table, as it were. Are we justified in using research results that are, as you put it in the book, quote, the written result of the exchange of difference, end quote, between human and non-human lives that is constitutive of the modern humanities, this theme to which we're going to keep cycling back to? And von, von Hornbrossel was not the only one, as you show, to have made such comparisons, uh, comparisons which were afforded not only by the institutional contexts that place the natural sciences and the study of cultural records close together on the same disciplinary spectrum before the war, uh, but also by innovations in laboratory equipment used in the study of recorded sound. So could you describe for our listeners how researchers came to traffic in this evidently animalist language to describe the study of sound recordings in terms of this section, which are more likely today to be figured as songs that is passive or inert objects of scrutiny? So a lot of a lot of scholars before me have already traced um, the origins of early music scholarship to um, experimental psychology in Europe, particularly in Germany. Um, and knowing their work, when I started to look at uh, examples of ethnomusicology by figures like Laura Bolton um, and Jesse Walker Fuchs, um, one of the centers for that research. Uh, at that time, in fact, was the um, Berlin Psychological Institute, um, where Eric von Hornbostel was a leading figure. He directed the comparative music scholarship there for many years. Um, as I looked more deeply into that, one of the conclusions that I came to was that the narrative that we currently have about the connections between music and psychology could be deepened if you looked one generation back and instead of just looking at sort of late 19th century psychologists, many of whom are doing laboratory experiments, right? Like this is very different from what we think of as like um, talk therapy psychology. Um, it was a very experimental, in fact, it was called experimental psychology. And it was very much about trying to develop quantitative information about the human senses. How can you create a quantification of vision? How can you create a quantification of nerve reflexes of, of hearing? Uh, and one of the things I found was that if you went 
one generation back from those figures in Germany, especially who were doing experimental psychological research, almost all of them trained at the same school in Berlin in physiology. And physiology at the time was this like, you know, in the mid 1800s, it was this groundbreaking study. And it was groundbreaking because it developed a series of um, sort of very mechanical clockwork like laboratory tools that allowed you to study the internal workings of a body in real time, which is really exciting, right? Um, we can do this today in some, some fields of medicine through visualization technologies like um, ultrasounds, right? But at the time, it was, a, it was a pretty high stakes practice because if you wanted to look inside of a body, you had to cut it open. And so the cost of this research was the loss of life. And as you know, knowing that, they primarily did this research on um, animals that were considered disposable, uh, usually domestic animals or food animals. They did a lot of this on dogs, on rabbits. Um, there were a lot of studies on frogs. And they did learn things from it. So um, you could, for example, cut a frog open and before it died, attach um, a measuring device to its heart and measure how its heart moved. Um, there were hundreds of tools developed for this kind of physiological research. And it's very gruesome, um, but it was also seen as a way to take biological knowledge into this incredibly quantitative realm that hadn't previously been available to people. Um, and one of the tools that became like a core tool that kind of translated between various tools was this thing called a chymograph. And it was basically a graphing technology. It's a rotating cylinder. And the way it was generally used in the late 1800s was for um, physiological research. The rotating cylinder, they would um, find a way to imprint an image on it. Uh, so it was kind of like a. Uh, sometimes you wrap paper around it. You could use a kind of uh, dark charcoal called lamp black and sort of scratch into that surface and then look at that. Um, and the way that they did it was they would have the rotating cylinder with a clockwork mechanism attached that allowed it to turn at a regular pace. You would attach that to an armature that at one end had a needle that sort of touched the cylinder as it turned. And the other end of the armature would reach into the animal you were studying. And so um, the classic example was uh, dogs. Um, they, they used it to study the motion of blood pulsing in dogs. And so you would cut open, this is like really gruesome. I'm so sorry for your listeners. <laughs> um, usually when I talk about this, there are pictures which are worse, but they would like cut open the um, vein on a dog's neck and they would insert the armature into that. And as the blood pulsed, the armature would move up and down, the needle would move up and down and it would create a kind of graph on the cylinder as it rotated. This technology was used in so many places. And one of the places that it got exported immediately, um, in, not immediately in time, but in terms of having an immediate and one-to-one -one relationship with its physiological origin was guys like Hornbostel, who, when he made this comparison between animal vivisection and studying music, had taken physiology. He had seen these tools demonstrated in laboratories as part of his studies as a student. Um, by the late 1800s, a new generation of psychologists, these people that we already knew existed in music scholarship, 
had started using this exact tool as a way to study sound. You could attach it to a tuning fork, like Helmholtz did this. Attach the armature that used to go inside the body of the dog. Now it's attached to a tuning fork. The needle goes up and down. And now you have a picture that represents A440. Um, And so that idea also exported an entire culture of graphic knowledge as the basis of information about sound. Um, And so sometimes I I used this kind of a complicated phrase that I feel like it's easier to explain in writing than verbally, but I I use this idea that you mentioned, the idea that um, knowledge was the written result of the exchange of difference. And part of what I was talking about when I talked about that in the book was that this was this idea of getting graphic knowledge through vivisection wasn't black and white. People debated it. Um, they talked about the morality of it. And the argument in favor was that it was better to sacrifice the life of a dog for knowledge that hypothetically could benefit human beings. And so there was a very explicit comparison between human knowledge the value of human knowledge and the value of the life of an animal. Um, So the graphic inscriptions that you saw from the chymograph directly related back to the idea of knowledge as something that was a kind of trade. Now, when I did this research, um, one of the other things that I realized, um, it was pretty easy to realize, actually, once you kind of looked looked at the images of this tool, the chymograph, uh, Jonathan Stern made popular the awareness, um, I don't even know when his book was published, it might have been close to 20 years ago now. Um, in the Audible Past, he wrote about the phonautograph, which was um, created in France um, by Edward Leon Scott as a kind of first proto-model of the modern phonograph. And it turns out that if you look at a phonautograph, and if also if you look at a... Um, like an Edison cylinder phonograph, it is identical in structure and design to a chymograph. The only difference is that they've reversed the direction of, um, of knowledge, basically, so that now that needle that goes up and down, instead of, inscribing, instead of inscribing a graphic image of sound, it's returning that knowledge back into sound through a, um, through a speaker. And the, like the horn on the photograph, phonograph um, is the opposite end of what in the original use of the chymograph was the body of an animal. Right. And having read that chapter, like it's impossible not to look at these sound recording artifacts and remember that depiction uh, of the chymograph that you just described. And I think, you know, having, having read the book, it's not, we may arrive at our own, and I, I'm kind of enforcing this, reinforcing this idea, like, we, we may come to our own decisions about whether the use of the technology was justified or not in the time, or whether that use of that technology in particular with respect to vivisection, obviously our views have changed kind of collectively on that. And yet it remains an important part of research uh, in certain fields. We may disagree about whether that exchange of difference is justified or not, but what we can't do as scholars or as people who are, you know, again, thinking about the current situation, but people who are also plugged into scientific inquiry and, lawmaking contemporary we can't ignore when those exchanges of difference are taking place like that's what this book teaches us and i think that's beautifully encapsulated by the image of the chymograph because it shows how each of these artifacts that follow are kind of haunted by not the particular 
you know, ethics at the moment in time, but the fact that there's a decision or there's a trade-off happening at that time, I think is so important. Right. Uh, and, and I think something that I felt so profoundly when I wrote that chapter was that my impulse, the impulse I expect from any reader is to immediately try to weigh and compare the judgment involved. And, and that is the exchange of difference, right? Like our impulse to sit down and say, was Hornbostel unethical for dissecting songs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that impulse is our heritage of that tradition of comparison. Um, right. And, and it's important to attend to the operation of comparison on its own, right? Before we can start to even broach the question of ethics. And there are obviously clear contexts where that sort of differentiation between human and animal is being sort of eroded or elided by our, our kind of remembering of how this discipline went. Um, it's probably a nice moment to pivot towards what is the second major section of the book, which begins at chapter five, which you've called postmodern humanity. Uh, and it marks a, the major structural break in the book because it in part turns to consider developments in the humanities after World War II. So the remaining chapters of the book tessellate into what you call a counter history to posthumanism. Um, so to give that counter history its animating force and to show how it might be of interest to readers beyond musicology and maybe critical animal studies more narrowly, you focus in quick succession on three episodes in the definition of a new human animal and a dualistic construction of the human that takes pains to separate biology from culture, that takes pains to separate body from mind and so on. A conceit that's embodied most acutely in the early doctrines espoused by the United Nations Post-War Project for Scientific and Cultural Reconstruction, UNESCO. This was in part due to a well-meaning desire uh, to expunge white European scientific inquiry of the racializing elements that had been used to give a veneer of apparently cool objectivity to crimes against humanity across the globe, mass internment, state-level eugenic policies. In America, we've just alluded to that in the case of Davenport, uh, and in the case of the Holocaust genocide. But you argue convincingly that this intellectual project ended up atrophying in some ways our sensitivity to obvious differences in human experience that remained after World War II experience of differences that are clearly demarcated along, for example, race lines well into the present day. Could you speak a little bit about how this same turning point is figured uh, by works done in fields like musicology, plant biology, anthropology, those three examples that you study, and what this particular notion of what you call the postmodern human being leaves to be desired from your perspective? Right. I think um, this is such a poignant moment to be thinking about this because I am thinking about the protest, the um, protests against anti-black violence happening right now um, in some of the same places where this this work was done <laughs> in the 1950s um, and thinking that in some ways uh, we have so much reckoning to do still with this past. Uh some of the work that I looked at on sonic specimens in the first half of the book was really grounded in uh, eugenics research and, and looked very closely at some of the eugenicists um, who promoted the idea of racial comparison and evaluation. And their work uh, was resoundingly rejected after the end of World War II. And it was part of the narrative of that war, um, that it had been a war against genocide. It had been a war against racism and the scientific community, particularly in biology and natural history, um, but also in the humanities, had to grapple very deeply with the fact that so much of what they had done had been built upon racial typology. Um, in, I'll, I'll start with thinking about that in biology. Uh, 
in biology, one of the major shifts that occurred, um, and there's fantastic work on this shift by a large number of authors. Um, I really like Betty Smokovitis's work on the um, sort of Darwinian synthesis, uh, but there's a lot of really great work on it. One of the things that happened was a turn back towards Darwin. We just sort of, we have a very monolithic narrative, um, at least in the United States. I hope this isn't true in Europe, but I think it is actually um, about evolutionary biology as having like been invented by Darwin and continued, you know, consistently since him. Um, But that's not true. Um, It wasn't really set in into educational textbooks until the 1950s with a turn towards Darwin as the antidote to racial typology. And the comparison emerged between two threads of practice in evolutionary biology, one of which was natural history, which had been the major source of information about species, about biological difference up through the 1950s. A new emerging trend that had started in the 1940s and was really gaining traction by the 1950s and 60s. And as you know, as an academic, like when you see an opportunity in in, um, our academic world, you kind of seize upon it. And people who were working in genetics, I think, many of whom had started their careers as eugenicists, right? Because genetics actually emerged out of eugenic research. But one of the ways of recuperating that tradition and recuperating that knowledge was to say, no, no, wait, actually what genetics does is proves that racism is wrong, that racial typologies are wrong, and that the kinds of typologies based on visual comparison used by natural historians are part of what led us to this dreadful moment of genocide and racism. Um, And so a kind of new trend emerged in biology, you asked about plant biology, but this was this was in um, partly in plant biology and also extended. Um, there was like a lot of work on insects as well, and the, it really put forward the argument that um, modern biology going forward would measure difference as a genetic reality, and that if you weren't talking about genetics, you couldn't talk about race. So on the one hand, there was this new idea that the human being, the human species was defined through genetics rather than through natural history typologies, rather than through older forms of comparison that had been rejected. Uh, But at the same time, that reckoning was a simultaneous attempt to recuperate um, lifelong careers of individuals whose work had started in eugenics. And so they carried forward a lot of the cultural norms. Um, if you look, for example, at the at the uh, um, symposia where Darwin's work was put forward as like the ultimate model of evolutionary biology, where genetics were put forward, and a lot of these symposia dedicated in the 1950s to the idea of like what is a human being. Um, conventions, things like this, they included scientists, they included geneticists, natural historians, they also included anthropologists, um, all of whom, with very few exceptions, were white. Um, There were a handful at one of them of Japanese scientists who attended. Um, There were a handful of women who attended primarily as spouses. And they often occurred in places where there's no obvious reason why that was the case. Um, for example, one of them occurred at Cold Spring Harbor, uh, which, if you recall, in an earlier chapter was the home of American eugenics. And now it's the home of American um, genetic biology. 
So that kind of thing happened a lot. And, and the place in which it happened had a pretty substantial African-American community living not far away. But none of those individuals were included in this conversation. Um, and that wasn't, I think, a deliberate exclusion. I think it was a um, cultural exclusion. I, it, I don't think it ever even occurred to the participants to ask themselves why that was the case. Um, and music scholarship, and this was true in art history as well, almost the opposite happened. So if the, the human was now a genetic being with no race, in musicology, one of the responses was like, well, we're not scientists. We, we don't talk about genetics, so we can't talk about race. Um, and musicians turned towards, music scholars turned towards what was colloquially called the music itself. Um, something that you may recognize from your early training. <laughs> yeah, something that pervades a particular way of looking at music. And it's surprising in some ways to see it, that turn of phrase being tied into this particular intellectual context but at the same time it's anywhere that this willful ignorance of difference or basically a difference or differentiation that takes place on the basis of an exchange of value between one kind of life or another or one kind of organism or another um we can find it at work and i think that's you know one of the things that's quite exciting about the book is that you begin to start to notice it um in the contexts that are maybe a little bit more distant from the the case studies in, in question um, we might come to the the sixth. Um, so we're we're coming towards the, the close of things now with the just two more body chapters to go. The, the sixth chapter fills the mandate to look more closely at post World War II um, activities of collection and uh, song, both animal and human, or rather both animal and um, human. Um, like chapter three, we have two historical actors featuring prominently in the sixth chapter, which you call listening for objectivity. Two men joined by their common interest in a piece of technology that they both felt would enrich their research in some way. By purchasing this piece of lab equipment uh, called a spectrograph that could be used to visibly trace the rising and falling pitches of human and avian singers, both researchers sought to use the device to redeem the promise of what um, Peter Gallison and Lorraine Daston called mechanical objectivity. So in chapter six, you describe these two researchers, one interested in birdsong, the other in folk song. How these researchers negotiated the more subtle and sometimes unfamiliar to us senses of objectivity and subjectivity that are uh, implicated in their encounters with the spectrograph. Could you explain what their use of this device in the sonic context during the 1950s tells us about objectivity in a lab context where listening is key? And what the ultimate falling out of favor of the device in some fields tells us about how the animal and the human sciences began to drift apart even further uh, in the kind of post-World War II moment? So I'm going to start by talking about the tool itself, which is the spectrograph. Um, I, I never imagined when I started writing this book and researching it that this that that mechanical devices would feature so largely. Um, but the spectrograph, amazingly, this tool, think way back to chapter four, um, this tool, the chymograph, which was used for animal vivisection and then was exported for studies of sound, um, particularly for comparative studies of music. Uh, in the form of the phonograph, was also used for ongoing experiments in studies of visualizing sound. Um, and in, during World War II, Bell Laboratories managed to figure out a, um, a way to filter the sound. One of the problems they had was that if you had actual sound recordings and you were hooking them up to a chymograph, right? So the same same tool, um, rotating cylinder. At this point, you're wrapping a piece of paper around it armature, needle, and at the other end, 
you've got like a phonograph record. One of the problems is that the sound that you have coming out of that phonograph record is really complicated. And um, they were getting just results that didn't make any visual sense. So um, during World War II, they, the laboratory um, in New Jersey, Bell Labs, they got a lot of money from the U.S. government to do research and development on this tool because the military was hoping to use it to do all kinds of things. I mean, this was related to early sonar research. It was um, explicitly related to an idea that is both very real today and um, still almost sounds comical to me, which was the idea that the government would secretly record voices on the telephone and that this device would, would typologize your voice. And if you were trying to hide an accent, um, like in this case, a German accent by the fifties, it was a Russian accent. The device would like identify that accent through visual graphic means <laughs> And, right. I mean, if, and it sounds you're laughing. I laugh about it, but I think they still do this, right? Um, they call it voice printing. Yeah, it's um, really important. We have our interactions with, uh, I don't know, Bank of America, or right? Just, uh, to pick to pick a, a completely random example, um, and constantly our interactions with people, and of course the interactions with the employees are being monitored for their affect try and optimize along this and amazingly uh, t- totally mind-blowingly all of this technology comes from animal vivisection in the mid-1800s <laughs> um so sure enough uh this tool resurfaced in the 1950s um as a spectrograph which this one it didn't playback sound like a phonograph but it made a graphic inscription and one of the incredible things was that it was taken up in this post um sort of moment of postmodern human, right? Like this moment when, when the humanities could only talk about the artwork itself and the sciences could only talk about genetics and quantification. Um, this tool was taken up both in music and in studies of birdsong at exactly the same year in order to quantify knowledge about sound in human beings and quantify knowledge about sound in birds. And the thing that's amazing is that the long-term outcome within about 15 years was that in the study of birdsong, this tool remains the gold standard for studies of birdsong. Um, it is described repeatedly in the literature as the beginning of objective research about birdsong. Um, really interesting because there's absolutely no reason why you'd use the word objective. Accurate, sure. It is very accurate. Um, but objective, really interesting that that was the word used to describe why this tool was valuable. They never said up front, this is valuable because it uh, in- improves accuracy. This is valuable because um, it provides a stable image we can look at. You know, No, they always talked about it as objective. In music, there was an identical language that emerged at the same time in the 50s. This was primarily put forward by Charles Seeger. He got money to start a lab to study his version of the spectrograph and its inscriptions in California. Um, he called it the melograph. And um, in music, he, he was able to run that lab for about 10 years. But uh, his students, his graduate students about 10 or 15 years later, started to criticize it. Um, They wrote actually really surprisingly critical articles uh, arguing that not only was the tool not objective, but also arguing that it wasn't accurate. Um, Nazir Jaradzboy actually did a comparative study of graduate students transcribing songs by ear 
and the Melograph and argued that they had the same number of errors or that the grads did better. And so they really dug into this word objectivity and said, by the 1970s, this is not the way to study music. And to me, part of what really got got to be evident in that schism between the same tool, the same question, the only difference is whether the subject is human or a bird, um, was the different criteria for knowledge that had begun to emerge in those two fields based on this um, schismatic idea of the human as either genetic or purely an artwork. And it's striking to see the identity. It's easy for from for us uh, from this perspective to see the same the device being used. The, the device itself is the gateway to this comparison that we can make uh, as as historians. Um, it's it's a very very clear case, I suppose, um, of the same object taking on that role of, um, I suppose, being the arbiter of what what kind of knowledge is possible or what kind of knowledge. Uh, is sought or expected right. or anticipated by the researcher. Right. Um, so as we come to the end um, of the interview, and we, we, we arrive at the final chapter, the seventh and final chapter of the book, uh, The Rose Garden. Um, and those who've been paying close attention to the structure of the book as they read along finds that each of the seven body chapters focuses on one of, of seven keywords that provide the scaffolding for the study of the animanities that we talked about at the head of the show. Um, and I'm not going to go through all, them all there because it's nice to let let the book reveal them and and to show, I suppose, in some ways what um, how that structure is not is not just given from the start but kind of unfolds. Um, but the operative keyword for the seventh chapter is paradise, and for that might be a, perhaps a surprising entry in a book primarily concerned with the worldly affairs of the scientific lab and the biosphere. But in my view, and my reading of the book, a turn to paradise is illuminating not just because of the utopian undercurrent to the book more generally, which enjoins us to rethink the ethics of scholarship that involves the non-human or the less than human, but also because of how the Judeo-Christian narrative of the Garden of Eden has been troped in depictions of animals and specifically birds in the soundscapes of artworks that take on the character of uh, sonic field guides. So um, just as we kind of wrap things up, could you just explain what the function of a traditional field guide to the animal kingdom is and how 20th century composers and sound artists have constructed similarly utopian representations of bird life in which sonic traces of human activity are suspiciously absent. I suppose that's one of the <laughs> one of the things that you attend to quite closely in the last chapter. I should preface this by saying that I, although I have a very conflicted relationship with field guides and um, think that they need to be crit- critiqued, uh, I also love them, right? <laughs> They're really fun. Um Traditionally, a field guide is is actually a, a kind of emergence of a, of a public realization on the part of scientists in the 20th century that like most of us don't know the world we live in anymore um, outside of human artifacts, and so they were originally designed um, way back. They were originally designed as a kind of curio cabinet um, by the by the 20th, mid to late 20th century, they were meant for amateurs who were interested in nature, but didn't know anything about it. And nature was categorized as like this very non-human space, right? Um, field guides generally talk about birds and, uh, you know, plants and animals um, in incredibly typological terms that are drawn straight from the 19th century. And it's, it's this educational mission that's really based on the idea that Natural history typology is about identification, identification of difference, um, 
and the pleasure of identification, right? Like part of what is intriguing to me about field guides is that they are pleasurable. It's deeply pleasurable to use these. Um, just to kind of hit on one of the ways in which they are pleasurable and strange in our modern world. Um, if I take a Peterson field guide to birds of North America, right? Um, there are all kinds of oddities in this book. <laughs> like um, if you read about the robin, for example, I'm, I live in suburban New Jersey. I'm like surrounded by robins. And if you asked me, where does a robin live? I would say things like trees near parking lots, <laughs> and, right? But in the field guide, no, robins live in uh, meadows and they, you know, they live in uh, natural landscapes that don't have parking lots. They don't have cars. Um, they don't have airplane sounds. Um, conspicuously, the other thing that you never see in a field guide is domesticated animals. Um, you never see chickens. You never see uh, domestic. You'll see geese um, and um, game birds, but you'll never see like domestic birds. Um, there is occasionally one or two that float in. Like if you go to the very last page of a, a bird guide to North America, you'll find uh, uh, like the canary. You know, you know, they they describe it as like this bird that doesn't belong in nature. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a whole category, actually, of birds that you're not supposed to see because they escaped. They call them escapes. Um, so that's one thing that's kind of interesting. Uh, the pleasurable aspects of these are are the pleasures of like ownership, right? Like you, I, I don't know if you use a field guide, but they're really fun. You look through them. There are pictures, and, and if you go out and start looking for these plants or birds or insects, you start to feel like you're amassing your own collection um, just by citing them. How have you seen that kind of impulse figured in some of the compositions or the soundscapes right. that you've identified? Because it's possible to have not just a printed field guide uh, in this kind of tradition that you described, but to have a sonic field guide. And I think maybe for people familiar with music composition, that's an obvious connections are already happening in their mind. Uh, but maybe if we're less familiar with the history of music and sound art, um, could you describe some of the kinds of uh, sonic feelings? Right. Like? So in the book, I talked about three. Um, one, probably the easiest one to start with, is Olivier Messiaen's Catalogue d'Oiseaux, which is uh, literally a, an auditory field guide. It's an artistic creation. Um, it does something rather different than a regular field guide, though. It really puts the birds in a much more specific context. Um, he attends a lot to sounds that represent time of day, that represent um, spatial contexts uh, like habitat. Um, so he's very careful about a kind of natural context. But again, um, the birds in his guide, it's like seven. It's really amazing, actually. It's like seven books of music for a solo piano that go through. I don't remember how many birds are in there. Do you know? Not off the top of my head. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, and, you know, they're, they're pieces of music that you play on the piano. It's like a five-minute piece dedicated to the Oriole or something like that. Um, but but like a traditional field guide, even though, like, Messiaen lived in Paris, right? Like, he knew a lot of birds through urban environments. But that never made an appearance in this guide, nor did it make an appearance in his pieces, his other compositions that included birdsong. Um, you never hear like a traffic sound and, you know, as part of a bird's context, um, you only hear sounds. He even includes sounds from the past. Like um, there were several birds that were located in a region of France that had fossils like di dinosaur bones. 
And he included the sounds of dinosaur bones, but he imagined them to sound like, um, but never did he include things like the sounds of urban buildings. Um, so there was a very deliberate choice and that choice is carried through in a lot of other examples like that. I talked about um, a rainforest sound walks, an album by Steve Feld that's much more recent. Um, and I also talked about this really wild pop-up book that was put together um, by Miyoko Chu and Cornell University that was meant to be a kind of celebration of biodiversity. It's, it's birds in pop-up environments and like there's um, digital information embedded in the spine of the book so that when you open it, you open to a pop-up landscape with birds that belong in that landscape and they sing in sequence. It's like a little composition. Um, I love these things, but it, it is noticeable that they're, they're imaginary in the sense that they're a paradise precisely because no human is there. Right. And I thought a lot about that because not only is this, um, right. The biblical garden of Eden, like the whole point was that it was a garden, right. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that was really framed in very different terms. Um, but this, this new knowledge of a paradise in which there is no human as the ultimate goal of conservation, right? Like that's kind of the ultimate goal of the preservation and conservation model. Um, it's very hard to imagine a real future in which that goal is going to happen. And when I wrote that chapter, I was really thinking about um, what happens next in our world, right? Like I didn't know we would face a pandemic, but we're facing climate change. Um, what happens next? It, it, yeah, and indeed, what happens next for the humanities without humans right. too? I mean, it gets kind of, in some ways, the question or perhaps the answer that's at the heart of this book, which is, are we willing to accept the terms of a discipline that may fall apart <laughs> in our absence? Uh, or if not, um, how do we reconfigure ourselves to become sensitive to the possibility of that future? And I suppose, in some ways, more pressingly, <laughs> in our continued existence to look and, and imagine and understand uh, what's been left behind through the kind of jaundice view that imagines that there isn't anything but us. Um, so, I, I mean, I, we've, I've been extremely pleased to have this conversation. We've taken up loads of your time. Um, I've really enjoyed having the chance to recap the book with you and to dig into some of um, the more finer points. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Rachel, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you just to let our listeners know what you're working on now and um if they're interested, where they can learn more um, about your work and perhaps uh, where they might find that next um, that next publication. Well, I'm working on some shorter projects, but I'm really excited right now about working on my second book. Um, and it's closely related to the first book. <laughs> I, um, I just felt like, uh, as I said in the conclusion of that book, I think the, the material that's opened up by rethinking the humanities um, through this really you know, quite structured context is not the work of one person. I think it's the work of a generation or more. Um, And I'm thrilled to be part of that. Uh, One of the things that I decided to focus on at the end of that book that I really didn't deal with in that book was the idea that um, if you start to interrogate the foundations of difference and identity as having specific historical contexts that explain where we are today with the humanities one of the places that takes you is um, kind of related to current threads in animal studies and new materialism that look at um, sort of a 
a deconstructive version of thinking about the concept of life. And something that I've been interested in is not so much taking a deconstructive approach to that, but, but simply thinking profoundly about like, what are the historical underpinnings that have determined life as the foundation of modern ethics, um, particularly in the recent past. Um, just to give you an example of one of the case studies I'm looking at now for that, um, one of the musicologists in the 1950s who pioneered the idea of the music itself, the music as its own thing was a guy named Donald Grout who taught at Cornell university in the 1950s. Um, it turns out that one of his students, a music major named Katie Payne, 20 years later discovered humpback whale song. And the techniques that he used are the techniques that she used to describe that sound. And I'm just, I'm interested, um, you know, where does that lead us? We've, we've been so harshly critical of this approach um, in human music in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and yet it also yielded very interesting things when it was applied to another species, partly because no one was listening to that species at all. Um, so I've been really fascinated to interview her and talk to her. I'm looking at a couple of other case studies for that book that involve um, information science and also partly inspired by your dissertation, Amon, actually, and also moths, a worthy subject <laughs> at any time. Um, <laughs> right now, none of that is in print, um, but anyone who wants is free to contact me if they want to learn more about it. Great, and, and people can follow. We'll be able to throw yeah. some links into the post there for the podcast. Um, oh, that sounds amazing. I, I'm really looking forward to that. It's a kind of testament, I suppose, in some way to what you've tapped into with, with the book that we've just reviewed, that there's more to say. Um, thanks for coming on the show, and especially for your time at this kind of time uh, when it's busy and difficult. Uh, it was a pleasure to hear more about it. Um, thanks so much for sharing your uh, voice and your time with us, and really best luck with the future work that you've just described to me. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. Bye.